So thank you, thank you, thank you for praying uh, during the services. I told your staff today that you guys were doing that, and you should have seen the smiles on their faces. So then I said to them, okay, so this week you get to join the mine, and you're going to also be secret agents in the service and praying. And so there's going to be even more of you. Uh, doing that. And just to tell you, last Sunday's offering was a good offering. I think we've got a sense going on that God is speaking to hearts and God is moving uh, people in this direction of obedience uh, in this area of their lives. So I'm just going to ask you, pray, pray, pray that much more. But here's the other thing I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to consider doing. I'm going to ask you to consider praying and taking seriously. When we finished up last week, we said, look, would you go home and just ask God what you're supposed to do, what he would ask you to do? I want to ask this room to be the example of that. And in this room that you would take dead seriously and that you would spend the next few days as we get ready to get to Sunday and you would just say, look, I'm just going to pray and I'm not going to do one extra dollar. I'm not going to do one thing more than what God lays on my heart, but I am committed to obeying whatever God lays on my heart. And if God says, give what you've already given, don't give, that's okay. I'm committed to obeying whatever God speaks to my heart. And that's what I'll do. Because here's the deal, guys. If, if this room can't respond that way, then I can't ask the bigger room. So I'm going to ask you to lead in this. I'm going to ask you to, by example, say, look, we're going to take this seriously. We're going to seek the face of God. And then whatever God says to us, we will choose to obey. And we will do that as an example to the rest of our church by being serious about it. And let's just see what God does. Let's see what God would do with us if we were serious about seeking his face and committed to obeying his voice on the deal. Hey, let's pray before we start tonight. Ask God to direct us uh, through our study. Let's pray real quick. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for your word and for what it does for our lives. We come to tonight committed to grow and committed to change. And we're just going to invite you to speak to our hearts, even to speak hard things, even to speak things that would challenge us. And uh, our ask is that you would move us closer to yourself and that we would be different for having spent this time in your word. God, help us to be true to what it says. Help us to understand it for what you meant. And we ask you this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, I believe uh, we are in verse 20. So Ephesians chapter 2, and I think we're in verse 20. Does that sound right to everybody? Sort of, maybe. Right on? Okay, all right, so here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Um, Actually, let's go back to verse 19 just to get a little context. Here's what it says. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house. He's talking about this idea that you and I, before Jesus, were outside of this and we were away from God and that Jesus has now brought us in uh, to the family. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets... With Christ Jesus himself as the chief, next word, cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? You and I ought to know this. What is a cornerstone? It's a foundation for a building. The cornerstone is the, I don't know how you say it, it's the 
the major foundation of the building. It's not just the building. It's the thing that the building sits on. The whole thing. Close. It's actually the name of a really cool church. Um, it yeah. is at that. Um, <laughs> it's the first stone. It's the, 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 the stone that sets, sets everything else straight. Okay. So here's what's happening in this concept. You've got to remember, you don't have a lot of uh, the building uh, methodologies and some of the uh, things that we do today to help ourselves out. They didn't have laser sights and they didn't have bubble levels. So here's what you did in this time. And that is that you had to take, and you're building an awful lot of what you're building literally out of stone. A matter of fact, if you go to Israel to this day, you find that almost all of their structures are built out of solid stone. They go to a quarry, they chip it out. It's actually cheaper because manual labor is cheaper to build out of solid stone than to pour concrete blocks, which is just remarkable to me. But it's still this same concept. So here's this solid piece of stone. But what you wanted to do with that first stone is you had to make sure that it was perfectly squared and perfectly straight because here's what you were going to do once you laid that first stone. Every other stone that you laid from then on, you ready, was going to be lined up and measured off of that stone. So whether that building turned out squared and 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 structurally solid or not, meant everything about did you line up that cornerstone in the beginning and then did you make sure that every piece of stone you laid after that lined up to the original stone, the corner, and that's the reason it was a corner, because you took the two angles coming off, the cornerstone of that building. All of a sudden you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There are, there's a lot of rich picture there about how you and I are to respond to Jesus. Because if Jesus is the cornerstone, what is this saying about you and I who are the other stones? So go ahead, take, do the mics. We're supposed to line our lives up with Jesus' life. There you go. That every bit of our lives are to take their cues off lining up on him. Which, guys, I'm just going to say to you, then, means you and I don't get to have the, the luxury of saying, look, I, you know, I just don't know that I like that verse. I'm not sure that the way Jesus did it is the way that I want to do it. I know that's what he said, but I think I have a better plan. He says, no, 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 you don't get this. Jesus is the cornerstone. And your and my life is at every moment, the matter of fact, whether this thing turns out right, whether this building gets built the way it needs to be built, whether it's structurally solid when we get done, everything hinges on you and I lining up our lives on His. Period. Period. Because He is the cornerstone. And you get a little bit of the sense of why we chose that name for a church. To say we wanted to be a body of believers. We wanted to be a group of believers who committed ourselves to saying we will line our lives up on Jesus. We will be Jesus in Chandler, Arizona. We, we will follow the cornerstone. It's a cool, cool verse. All right. Keep going. Uh, verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together. 
and rises to become one holy temple in the Lord. So just that same thought that you and I, in him, everything joins after that. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And mark the moment we've made it to chapter three. Okay, it's pretty good. There we go. Chapter three. Oh, hey, well, well, one last thing. Okay, think about this for a second. Uh, verse 22. In him, you two were being built together to become a dwelling in which what? Who lives? God lives. What do we mean when we say that God lives in us? What's that a reference to? To what? Holy Spirit. How many believers have the Holy Spirit? How many non-believers have the Holy Spirit? When does the Holy Spirit leave a believer? When we get to heaven. Okay. Okay. So, but here's the part you want to consider on this is if that's true, then if God dwells in you and me, then that means God is with me every moment of my life, right? Even last night when I sat and watched that TV show, I shouldn't have watched or went to the movie or laughed at the joke at work. God was with me. I took God into that conversation When I gossiped on the phone with my friends, God was there with me because he lives in me. You know, I think think sometimes we get this impression that we live our lives and that we can go behind a door and suddenly it doesn't get seen and nobody notices. And you and I as Christians never have that luxury because God is always present. In us, which means he watches your TV shows, he listens in your conversations. It's it's the blessing of having God there because he knows all that's going on. He hears every one of your prayers, no matter how quietly whispered. But he's there for the worst of our moments too. And I'm just I'm just going to say to you that when I get conscious of that, when I think about that, it kind of changes the things I watch on TV, and it changes the way I talk about other people. And it changes the things I'm willing to laugh at when I know that God is there in the conversation. Chapter three, here we go. Uh, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. What does Paul mean here when he says he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Servant. Huh? Servant. He's a servant. And I think all through Scripture, you're going to find Paul referring to himself as a servant. Matter of fact, we're going to get into a couple passages tonight where he does that. This is a different word. Uh, Here he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Isn't that Uh, an interesting phrase? Could could it be that he's saying that he's a bond slave to Christ? You know, there are passages where he actually uses that terminology about himself and says, I'm a bond slave. And how many know what a bond slave is? Oh, good. Okay. So here's the deal. Uh, Paul actually refers to himself. As a matter of fact, invites you and I to consider being the bond slave of Jesus. And the reason for that is this, that in Jewish law, uh, you got to remember back in, the, in, in this period of time, you don't have employment structures like what you and I have right now. And so what you would do, remember when um, Isaac wanted to marry Rebecca? Remember that? So he goes to Laban 
And he says to Laban, I will work for you for seven years if you give me Rebecca to be my wife. Remember that conversation? What he says in this culture is, I'll be your slave for seven years. Because the form of employment was what you would do is you'd say, look, I'll be your servant. I'll do anything that you want for this period of time. But at the end of that period of time, then you've got to give me this piece of land or you've got to give me your daughter as a wife. So you would indenture yourself as a slave for a given period of time. And then you would receive whatever it was that was going to be your payment for that period of service under that other person. Got to remember, you don't have you know, Apple computer and Intel for you to go. You don't have that employment structure. It's much more of a agrarian and feudal system. Okay. So in this, in, in Hebrew law, you could never indenture yourself for more than six years. The seventh year was always a year of release. You could never. So, so if you went in, you could say, look, in, in the longest period of time you were allowed to commit to was the sixth, the seventh year you had to be released from the contract. Because they didn't want the Jewish people to ever be in bondage. So you could only indenture for six years. Here was the difference with a bondservant. A bondservant was someone who said, I so deeply love my master that I choose to be in their service for all of my life. I choose to forego the release. I love my master that deeply. And it's an interesting thing. Guess how they would signify that you were a bondservant? They would put a hole in your ear and put an earring in it. And so, matter of fact, when you go back in ancient times and you find earrings, you're finding usually, especially if it wasn't for a female, you're finding the, the mark of a bondservant. Someone who loved their master so deeply, they said, I'll spend my life serving you. I don't want release. Isn't that interesting that Paul at one point encourages you and I to say, would you consider being the bondservant of Jesus? That you would say, I so deeply love my master. I choose to serve you with all of my life, and I do not want release from this. It's an interesting terminology. That's not what's here, okay? So we're back to this. That's not what's here. He's here he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ, okay? I think that goes um, into uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. When God took him out... And he took him out so that ultimately he would reveal to him the message of Christ. And um, I think that's it. He, he, he was selected, and it is like a prisoner. He had no other choice but to yeah, I, perish. And again, I think, I think what you're saying is absolutely true because there are passages all through Scripture where Paul refers to himself that way. And as being one chosen out and being called to. So let me, let me all right, go ahead real quick, and then I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you a freebie on this one. All right. Paul was actually in prison for preaching. There's your answer. Paul's in prison. Paul's actually in prison. This isn't metaphorical. He's in prison. He, uh, I don't know if you remember, as you read through the book of Acts, Paul has finished his uh, missionary journey. He's now decided to go back to Jerusalem. A couple of his friends warn him and say, Paul, don't, don't go back to Jerusalem. I've already, I've already uh, been revealed by the Lord that if you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to go, you're going to be a prisoner. And uh, Paul says, I just feel compelled. I feel that I've got to go do this. He ends up arrested. Uh, they're getting ready to go and stone him for preaching the gospel. 
just at the last possible moment before they stone him, Paul says, well, 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 wait a minute. Are you going to stone a Roman citizen? Because Paul's father was actually a Roman. Okay. And he says, are you going to stone a Roman citizen without a trial? And then they're freaked out of their minds. And he says to them, I appeal to Caesar, which simply meant if you appealed to Caesar, you said, I feel like I've gotten an unfair trial. I'm appealing to the Supreme Court. I want to ask if Caesar will hear my case. And now they've taken him to Rome and he is in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel of Jesus. Now, what do you think Paul means when he says, I, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because let's be honest, he's not the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's the prisoner of Rome. He's he's under arrest by Rome. He's waiting for Rome to take him to trial. Why in the world would he refer to himself here as the prisoner of Jesus Christ? Isn't that interesting? Go ahead. Is it because God allowed him to be a prisoner? Hmm. What do you think? He, cho- he chose to be a prisoner because he chose to keep preaching and go into the city to preach even when he knew what the outcome was and that he okay. would be a prisoner. So I agree with you. He chose to keep preaching. He chose to do something he knew was going to put himself at high risk. But he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Not the prisoner of my actions. The prisoner of Jesus Christ. What do we think? I would say um, just as Jesus was a prisoner... Um, and a prisoner to, for his purpose to save mankind. Um, Paul was a prisoner to Jesus Christ because his call was to um, uh, preach to the Gentiles. Okay. All right, let me see if I can find this real quick. Okay, I can't find it. All right. Here's what I think he's saying. I think Paul believes from the very bottom of his heart that God's in control. I I think he believes unequivocally that Rome could not do anything unless God allowed it. That his God is bigger than Rome. And if he's a prisoner, he's a prisoner because that's where God wants him. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ, he says. Now, if you let that sink in for a minute, that has all sorts of ramifications to your life and my life. Because, because, here's the deal. If I, if I live in disobedience, okay, in other words, I know the Bible says to do that and I say, I'm not going to do it. I, I know that I shouldn't, but I'm going to. Uh, I know, I know I cut a corner or I fuzzied up a commandment. I've lived in disobedience. What is the natural outcome of disobedience? So here we go. Come, what's the natural outcome of disobedience? This, this ought to be easy, guys. A spanking. There you go. Okay, good parenting. 101 right there. Okay, a spanking. So if I'm in a moment in my life in which I say, look, I have disobedience in my life. And now I am living with the consequences of my disobedience. Could I say... I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever bad things are happening to me, whatever spanking is happening, whatever setbacks I'm experiencing in my life, whatever discomfort I have in my life right now, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ if I'm living that moment in disobedience. Can I say I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ? 
I'm going to suggest no. You are a prisoner of the consequences of your own actions. You are where you are, not because God put you there. You are where you are because you put you there. And you just say, I'm a, I am a prisoner of my own bad decisions. Does that make sense? But let's say you and I have lived in absolute obedience. Okay? In other words, I sit there in that moment I, and I go, man, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why I've had that setback. I don't know why I lost that job. I don't know why my child is sick. I don't, I don't know why I got that doctor's report. I don't know why the financing didn't go through. But I look and I go, you know what? I, as best I can tell, I've got clean hands. I have lived every moment as best I can see with obedience to God. I, I, I think I stand clean hands in front of God right now. Okay? In that moment when I've lived in obedience and now I find myself having tough times, could I say in that moment I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Yes, no. How many say yes? You could say I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. All right, all right. So, all right. You just didn't want to get on the microphone. Okay, so I'm a prisoner of Jesus because here Because here's the other shoe down on this part of the conversation. Which means... That tough time that you're going through, that setback that you're experiencing, that I would have never chosen this for myself, in that moment, couldn't you and I be just as assured as Paul is that what I am going through is the center of God's will, even if it means chains? See, we, we, measure, we measure the center of God's will by, hey, do I have all the money I need? And did I get the promotion last week? And, you know, does my girlfriend still like me? And that, that's how Paul is in jail. He is a prisoner for doing nothing wrong. And he says, I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because he believes from the top of his head to the tip of his toes, I am exactly where God wants me to be right now and where God wants me to be is in a jail cell in Rome. Because the reason I'm asking this, guys, is I, I'm just wondering if you and I were in the same chains, would we call ourselves the prisoner of Jesus Christ or the victim? Which means, and I'm, I'm just going to suggest that when you and I get to moments that we don't like and we don't understand and we don't make a lot of sense of it, and we go, wow, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know, that the first most logical thing for you and I to do is to first come to this side and say, have I been disobedient? In other words, is there anything in my life where I know Scripture has said, I know God asked, and my answer was no, or God said, don't do it, and I went ahead and did it anyways? Am I living in disobedience? Because then the chains that you're experiencing in your life, those chains are the chains of your disobedience. You are your own prisoner. You put yourself where you're at. But if in that moment you say, I, I, as best I can tell, I'm obedient. As best I can tell, I've done exactly what God wanted me to do. Then I'm going to suggest in that moment, rather than crying and saying, God, why are you being unfair? And God, why are you treating me so badly? What if you and I in that moment came to the same conclusion that Paul did and said, I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I am living this moment in absolute obedience. I don't necessarily understand why I'm in chains. I'm not sure what God's going to do next in my life. But I believe that God is bigger than Rome. And that I am in the very center of God's will, even if the center of God's will isn't fun right now. Does that make sense? I think we, I think we decide whether or not God's doing a good job based on how fun it is. 
Paul's in chains. And he says, I'm exactly where God wants me. Did we have questions? Okay, go. Yeah, I think um, one point here is, is the fact that he was submissive to this. I mean, he didn't have to go back to Rome. Yeah. And he knew what was happening, so it, was, it wasn't the fact that he was thrown in jail. It was the fact that he was submissive to God when he did it. Yeah. He, he got there by doing exactly what he believed God had told him to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I guess my question is, um, like, I understand the disobedience. Um, we put ourselves, we get ourselves in trouble when we're disobedient. That's our fault. However, God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, nothing happens without it first going through his hands, whether we're disobedient or obedient. So I guess my question would be, I mean, so isn't it still God in control of things? I mean, he's in control Mm -hmm. of all things. Okay. So that's, I guess that's... All right, so did you understand the question? So if I'm disobedient and now I'm where I'm at as a direct result, in other words, I'm living through a spanking, but if God is sovereign, then hasn't God made decisions for me to be there? Would that be a correct phrasing? What do you think? Are we interested in that answer? Two of us are. All right, a couple of more. All right, so let me give you a quick one on it, and then if you, have, if you want to talk more, we'll talk afterwards then. Okay, so here's, here's the easy answer to that. God being sovereign does not mean that everything is what God wants. God being sovereign means that in the end, it's how God planned. Okay, so there's a difference there. And here's the best way I can describe this to you. Because God gave this incredibly weird, horrible thing to you and I, that's called free will. It's how we mess up. It's how we read a passage of Scripture and say, God, take a hike. I don't like it. I'm not going to do it. It's free will. And I'm going to tell you that that moment of disobedience when you and I sleep with a boyfriend or steal from our employer or lie through our teeth, that's not God's will. That has nothing to do with the sovereignty of God. That has everything to do with your disobedience and mine. It's called free will. So the best way to describe this and how God's sovereignty works is, is a bowling alley. And in a bowling alley, there's gutters. And those gutters are basically there to say to the ball, you can only go this far out of bounds, and then I will take over and make sure you don't go any further out of bounds. Does that make sense? Okay. God sets gutters. So I guarantee you there are parameters. And if you try to go too far, if you try to do too much, you wait and see how God responds. And God will, God will get in your way. He will place gutters and say, that's, that's enough, far enough. I'm going to spank the holy bahookers out of you. And if you and I keep rolling gutter balls, if you and I just say, I'm going to live a life of absolute disobedience over and over again and shame the name of Jesus Christ, I think Scripture teaches real clear those moments God says, you know what, why don't you just come home? You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing me. Let's just take you to heaven and we'll call it a day. So there's gutters here. But inside those gutters... God allows you and I to make choices, even choices of disobedience, which means I can get my life somewhere that God would have never chosen for my life to be. I can make mistakes that God would have begged me to avoid that mistake. And I guarantee you, we we could get a hundred stories in this room of people who say, oh, no, no, no. I, in my disobedience, have taken myself places that I know God never wanted me to take myself. 
I've made decisions that I guarantee you God never wanted me to make that decision in my life. And I've paid the consequence for it. But apparently, it was still within his sovereign gift of free will to allow you to make that choice. Okay? All right, so getting back. Paul is a prisoner, okay, of Jesus Christ because he's gotten himself into exactly where God wants him to be. And guys, here's the part that you've got to catch in this moment. It is not fun being the prisoner of Rome. There, there is, there's no cable TV. It's, it's, you're, you're basically, now what we find out about Paul is, is that he actually ends up in house arrest, uh, there just outside of the, the royal palace. But here's the interesting thing. As part of Paul's imprisonment, he has to be guarded. And because he's appealed to Caesar, it's now Caesar's guard, the proletariat, that have to guard Paul. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. If you're a Roman guard chained to Paul, Paul the apostle, Paul the preacher, what do you think that day is like? And what do you think Paul is doing during your eight-hour shift? I mean, who's really the prisoner of whom in that moment, right? I mean, and here's what we know, okay? We, We know this because church history gives us this story. It's not in the Bible. It's church history. But here's what we're told through church history. That Paul, while he was in prison in Rome, and as the Roman guards came into his house and had to watch over Paul and were chained to him, that Paul unceasingly, unrelentingly witnessed to the Roman guards, the proletariat, the Guards of Caesar himself, the highest caste of Roman soldier. And guess what happened? He started winning scores and scores and scores of Roman soldiers to Christ. So much so. And Paul actually ends up beheaded. I don't know if you knew that. He ends up beheaded. It's done. But he won in his time in imprisonment in Rome so many of Caesar's guard to Jesus Christ, that the guard became known as the Christian Brigade. And years later, when Caesar commanded the proletariat to kill Christians, they stood at attention and refused to lift their swords. And they were all slain by their comrades because their Christian faith was so deep. See, Paul said, I am here as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I may not understand my chains. I may not like my chains. But here's what I believe. In the midst of whatever is happening, I believe God is wanting to use me. And he ends up winning Caesar's guard to Christ. And on the day that they're commanded to kill other Christians, they choose instead to lay down their lives. See, we we wonder why the Christian faith was so contagious in that first century. It was contagious because people were given their lives to look like Jesus. They, 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 didn't, they, they weren't running around going, oh, I don't think I like that verse. They were saying, I will follow Jesus and I will follow Jesus to the death. And if Jesus wants me in chains and if Jesus wants me to be in prison, then I'll be a prisoner of Jesus. They, they were living large. It's why... Christianity ends up causing the fall of Rome because Rome has no answer for these people who have given their lives to a Savior. I thought I saw a question. Yes, no, good, okay. 
One right here. When we're punished by Jesus, okay, it's not really a punishment as we would know it because it's a correction. Okay. So I don't think that even in disobedience, God is using anything to punish us. He's using it to stop us from getting further. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right in the sense of God, you know, we, we get really weird on this whole discipline thing. And part of it is because, let's just be honest, in American culture, we're horrible disciplinarians. Uh, you know how we discipline in American culture? We say to our kids, hey, don't do that. And what does our kid do? They do it. And, and then what we do is we decide if I ignore the fact that they just blatantly disobeyed me openly, then maybe they'll stop. So what do they do three minutes later? They do it again. And then you go, I told you not to do that. And then we ignore it. And what do we do 20 minutes later? They go back and... And here's what happens. You and I end up disciplining when we're so stinking frustrated, so worn out, so mad out of our minds, that the reality is we're we're no longer correcting our child. We're just venting our anger. And that's just, that's, just, that's just crazy, horrible. That's just wrong. I don't know any other way to say it. That's just wrong. And then when we get to passages like this, we think of God up there getting all spazzed out and swinging his arms. And that's, that, When the Bible talks about God disciplining us and God correcting us, God's not doing that. God's not all freaked out and spitting and foaming, which was what we should never be doing either. The truth is... You and I should have addressed that child the first time they did it, before they irritated our heads off, and before we got all mad and said, Tommy, you're not going to do that again, because if you do, I'm going to spank you. And I'm not going to be mad a bit, and it's going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Because <laughs> if it doesn't, I didn't do a good job. But I'm not going to do this spitting and angry and mad and beating you to death. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to teach you the way you ought to behave. And that's what God does in our lives. God doesn't come all spitting and screaming and snorting. He just comes and says, really? You're going to do that? Really? No. No. And I'm just going to make it really tough, really hard, really miserable if you decide to do that again. And that's what he does. And here's the, here's the part about it, and I just think it's hilarious for us. If you go to war with God, I mean, if you go, hey, God, I, you know, I know you said it, but I'm not going to do it, and I'm just going to, and, and God says, no, you're not. Who do you think wins that conversation in the end? I mean, who do you think is going to get tired first? And it's just, it's crazy on our parts when we decide to willingly and knowingly live in discipline because God's going to win that argument every time. Or, or, yeah, you could just sit there and be miserable the rest of your life. I guess you could do that one too, but that's not winning the argument, is it? Yeah. In the Old Testament, there are some uh, verses that talk about God's anger. Yeah. And how does that square with what you just said? Well, I think, here's the thing, I think it's possible to be angry and not sin. You know, you you talk about Jesus when he's in the temple. I I don't think Jesus was walking around and going, you shouldn't be doing that, let me turn your table over. You know, I don't think that's how Jesus is living that moment. Uh, He's clearly angry and he's doing it. The difference is, I don't think he's out of control. I don't, I don't think he's that other end of rage. I don't think you hear Jesus cussing. I don't think he's throwing the tables on top of the money changers and trying to hurt them. I think he's just saying, you will not do that in my father's house. There's not a chance. And so there, there's such a thing as, there's moments I think it's okay to have righteous anger. There's, you know, I, I think scripture says, be angry and sin not. But if I'm protecting the innocent... It's okay for me to be angry at the person who's abusing the innocent. 
You put me in front of a child molester, it's okay to be angry at the child molester, okay? Uh, as long as I don't then do ungodly things in my anger. I don't begin to cuss and swear, or try to cause injury for vengeance, those types of things, okay? So it's not that foaming at the mouth, swinging of the sword type of anger. Okay, we're good? Okay, let's keep going. We are in... Oh, verse 2. Here we go. All right. We are cruising. All right. <clears throat> Got past that third chapter and slowed down a little. All right, here we go. Verse 2. Surely, uh, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. Okay, so follow along because we're going to read a chunk of verses right now. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's talking about his ministry. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to men in other generations, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay, what's the mystery that he's talking about? What is that? What is the mystery that he is talking about? Paul uses this terminology several times in Scripture. What's the mystery? How the Gentiles, the infidels, okay. basically. So Gentiles being Christians. Matter of fact, guys, just in case uh, you're, you're trying to figure that out, go to the next verse, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. And all he's saying is this. Look, guys, for... Thousands of years, Israel has said, we are the ones and nobody else gets in. And that's not the way that it is. And he's saying, no, 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 guys. What you need to know is this is a new day and God is bringing the two and making one. Remember that was earlier in the passage. And the Gentiles are included in this family. And I know you didn't see it coming. I know you didn't understand it up until now. It was a mystery to you, but it was there. God's been saying this all the time. And matter of fact, you get to Old Testament passages over and over again. It says, and I, will, and I will make you a great people of all nations. And there's all sorts of Old Testament verses that hinted to this idea that the Gentiles were going to be included in the Messiah. And that's all he's saying. He's saying, I know you didn't get it. I know you misunderstood this. I know you didn't see this coming, my Jewish brothers. But the Gentiles get to be in the kingdom. Okay? And they are included. Okay? Sometimes also, though, in Scripture, when it talks a little bit about this mystery, the thing they didn't see coming, what was the other thing the Jews did not see coming? They saw Messiah coming. What did they not see coming? What part of Messiah did they not see coming? The death. They did not see the cross. And if you look, if you go back and you look at history, the Jews believed that Messiah was a political savior. They believed that he was going to remove the oppression of the Romans. And that's why they come over. And, matter of fact, um, do you remember the passage in, in, I believe it's in Matthew, where it says, and they came to make him king, and Jesus turned and slipped away and left. Why? Why would Jesus refuse to be king? Because they weren't asking him to be king of their hearts. They weren't asking him to be savior. They were talking about a political uprising. They were going to make him king to lead in a political movement against Rome. 
And Jesus said, I didn't come for politics. I didn't come. I came to be king of your heart. And here's the crazy part, guys. We all know that when God finally sets up his kingdom, there will be a sense of it being political. I mean, he's going to rule the world. But what you need to know is the heart of God is not to be a political savior. The heart of God is to rule our hearts, which I'm just going to say to you out loud, too, is one of the reasons our church doesn't get involved in a whole bunch of politics. And I got to say it this way. I believe there are some things that the Bible says that ought to affect how you vote. I think when you read scripture, there's some values and clear teachings in scripture that ought to deeply affect how you vote. But you and I are not going to bring a political resolve to this world. You and I are going to change this world by introducing people to the Savior. The hope is not that we get everybody to vote a Christian way. The hope is that we get everybody to know a Christ. That's the call of the church. Okay? And the truth is, guys, if you really, really know Christ and you follow him with abandon, it will affect your voting record. It just will. It just will because you'll vote with biblical values in mind. But that's not the call of the church. The call of the church is a king of the heart. Okay, we had a hand in the back. All right. Um, so was it possible in the Old Testament to convert to Judaism, or did you have to be born a Jew? Yeah, it was, it was, and that's what you had to do in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And if you watch over and over and over again, every time that Israel is obedient to God, okay, God begins to bless Israel like crazy. In other words, they, they just prosper. Like every time they follow God, God begins to prosper them. And the idea is to make the other nations jealous. And the idea is that the other nations would come and say, tell us about this Jehovah God, because apparently your God is doing for you things that our gods, our wooden statues, our pieces of stone aren't doing for us. And the idea in the Old Testament was that you would then convert and you would say, Yahweh is my God, which is exactly, and we're actually going to talk about her story in a couple of weeks, but is what Ruth does. Remember Ruth in the Old Testament, she's actually a priestess of false gods. She sees what God is doing and she converts to Judaism. Here's the interesting thing. Ruth ends up being in the line of Messiah. She's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She's a converted, I believe it's a Malachite who comes across. Okay? So that was the idea. You were the other nations were to be jealous and the other nations were to come pursue God. The other place where you see that a little bit in action, remember King Solomon? And and as God is blessing with Solomon and he's building all these things and all these wonders, and then remember the queen of the east, Queen Sheba, comes to see what is it that God is doing in Israel. And the intent was that they would be so jealous and so caught up in the power of God that they would convert. Okay? Yep. So, uh, you know, you have the, if a Gentile is anybody that's non-Jewish, even if they're another religion? Yes. Okay. A Gentile is anybody who is not of Jewish descent is a Gentile, which would mean probably most of us in the room. Okay, we're good? All right. Back to the passage. Verse 7. Okay, and here's that word we were talking about earlier. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. All right. So now let's now he's remember he's changed titles now. Remember before he said I'm a prisoner, 
that was probably a very direct reference to what was physically and literally happening in his life, being a prisoner in Rome. Now he changes and says, I am a servant. Now what is he trying to convey? Even though he's a prisoner, he's doing it willingly. Okay. Without uh, holding back. So I am here. I am serving willingly. Here's my question. Is this title for Paul alone? Is Paul the only servant? Is Paul saying this because he's super spiritual? How many of us are supposed to be able to say, I, Lynn, the servant of God? All of us. So let me, let me ask you a question. Okay, well, before I ask you the question, let's let's look at a couple of verses real quick. Make sure that we get there. Okay, go to Romans chapter 12. Most of you will know this passage. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Okay, so if you offer your body as a living sacrifice... What's left after you sacrifice? Ashes. Yeah, because when you here's the deal. When you do a sacrifice, you kill, you slay the sacrifice, and you burn it. So when God says, hey, I'm, I'm asking you to offer your life, your body, as a living sacrifice, how much is not offered in that moment? Everything's offered. Everything is offered in that moment. And he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Are you ready? This is your spiritual act of worship. Matter of fact, if you read the King James Version, it says, this is the reasonable thing to do. In light of what Jesus Christ has done for you, the most reasonable thing for you to do is say, God, look, here's the deal. I I know I was a sinner. I know I was going to hell. I know there's no way that I deserve heaven. There's no way I deserve to be in your family. And you gave me that. And the only reasonable thing for me to do is offer myself. Just to say, look, I remember back to that indentured servant, the bond slave. I choose to serve you. And I want no release. And scripture says that's the only reasonable response of a person who has felt the touch of the cross. I give you my life. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go. I'll get married if you want me to get married. I'll be single the rest of my life if you want me to be single. I'm a servant. And I will serve my master. Okay? Another passage just really, really quick. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Let me read this for you. Here's what it says. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which led to death or leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that through though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and you have been set free from sin, and you ready? Become slaves to righteousness. And he is saying, 
this exchange, this I want a savior is you saying, I used to be a slave to the ways of the world. I choose now to be the servant of God, the slave of God, which means, which means, which means how many of the requests of our master do you and I get to disobey? How many times does the slave say, you know, I I know you said get up at five o'clock. I don't want to get up at five. I'm not going to do that. You get that this moment, this exchange is to say, God, I will live every part of my life in obedience to you. And here's why I think this is such a huge conversation, especially for the church in America today, is because the church in America today suffers from selective obedience. See, here's the deal. The church in America today, we all believe we're little gods and we have the right to say to our master, look, I, if I were God, I wouldn't have made that rule. And if I were God, I wouldn't have written that verse. And if I were God, I wouldn't have said it that way. And I don't like how you said it, so I'm not going to obey it. And somewhere in our pioneering American spirit of on time, we've all of a sudden decided that we, we get to evaluate God's leadership and tell him how we believe he's doing. And if he's not, we'll just vote him out of office for a while. You and I are slaves to righteousness. Which means the answer has to always, whether I like the question or not, whether I want there is got to be, I will. I wouldn't choose chains, but I will. I wouldn't choose a life of singleness, but I will. Because I'm your servant. And there, you ready for this? There is nothing you could ask that my answer would be no. There is nothing you could ask that my answer would be no. And when you and I get there, we have finally taken the first step to truly being disciples. When we finally acquiesce and realize, I am not the boss of me anymore. And until you cross that, you will always be a disobedient, rebellious follower of Christ. Yeah. Um, Earlier on, you mentioned watching the TV shows, that you needed to turn that TV show off or listen to the joke with the swearing, which would be selective obedience in, in a matter of looking at it. So what if you're just slipping in your obedience? Because Nobody is 100% obedient. And there you go. We would be perfect, and none of us are. So yeah. what if it's not deliberately being disobedient, but slipping, catching yourself, and then picking up again, which I think is what the vast majority of us do? Sure. How do we separate that from selective obedience? There you go. Okay, so isn't that a great question? What's the difference between, because here's the answer. How many of you are perfect followers of Jesus Christ? Okay, all right. So we're, I'm, in, I'm in good company. All right, so... What's the difference between a, a, dead, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ who on, on occasion and in reality stumbles in trying to follow Jesus Christ with all my heart and a Christian who's being disobedient? What's the difference between the two? A willingness to repent when you um, become aware of what's happening. Whereas when you're sliding, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Where when you're selectively obedient, you're like, yeah, I just didn't like that, so I didn't do it. Okay. 
So here's, and, there, and there's the answer. The, the answer is this. The answer is directional. Okay? The answer is directional. So here, here's the deal. If I'm a Christian and God says, go this way. This is the center of my will. This is, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Then which direction is disobedience? Any other direction. Because here, here's what we do. A lot of us do this kind of partial obedience. We go, okay, I know God wants... And I, but I, na, na. Okay? Any other direction is disobedience. Any other direction okay, is disobedience. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, God, I know, I know. I know you asked me to go this way. And I was going a different way. And sometimes it's the opposite way. Sometimes we are just hell-bent on just doing exactly the opposite of what God said. But the truth is, a lot of us spend a lot of our times doing sort of what God said. Which is disobedience. And not just sort of disobedience, it's because any time that I say, God, you don't understand and you don't get it and I don't like your... And, and I go, so I'm going to tweak it. I'm going to fix your decision and I'm going to help you be better at being God. It's disobedience. It, you and I are setting ourselves above the wisdom of God. Think about this for a second. When Satan falls, when Satan falls, do you know, you know the passage in Isaiah and also in Ezekiel where it describes how Satan falls? What does Satan say in that moment? What is it that Satan does in the fall? What does he say? Anyone know? I will be like the most high. What's he saying? I will be the one who makes the final call. I will decide what needs to be decided. And see, here's the deal. See, we, we all think that, that if Satan had his way, we'd all be Satan worshipers. No, 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 no. If Satan had his way, we'd all be self-worshippers. Because that's the sin of Satan. Satan's sin was saying, I'm smarter than, better qualified than God, and I'm going to make the plan. So every time you and I say to God, I know you want me to go this way, but I have a better idea, a better plan, you and I are doing exactly what Satan did in that moment. God, I'm smarter than you, I've got a better idea than you, and I know you don't, but I'm going to do it. So anything that is not this is disobedience. Okay? So, now back to, what's the difference between a disobedient person and an obedient, and, and a, and a, an obedient person who stumbles and a disobedient person? Here's the, here's the difference. A disobedient person has looked at the will of God and said, I know God's will is that way, I'm going to go this way. It's directional. I am moving into my will and ignoring His will. The difference... An obedient Christian is saying, I am moving in God's direction. In other words, I am attempting to be obedient. But as I attempt my obedience, I've stumbled. And, and I, I didn't live that moment the way I should have. But I am dire- my direction is to do the will of God, not to do my will. That's the difference between an obedient and a disobedient Christian. It's direction. Does that make sense? Maybe simplified. Whose will was I trying to do when I stumbled? An obedient Christian was trying to do his will. A disobedient Christian was trying to do their own. 
it's directional. Okay? All right, question. I was just going to make a comment on that. Like, even with Peter, who loved Christ and wanted to follow Christ, you know, he, he got revealed some of what the plan was and said, no, no, you, that can't be. That can't be right. You know? And Jesus said to him, get behind me. Say, yeah, yeah. Okay? So you can. You can be in the will of God, trying to follow God, and you can stumble. Okay? Disobedient Christians are in the will of themselves, doing their own thing, and then they're just making it worse. Okay, how much time do we have? Uh, Pastor Lynn, we are out of time. Oh, there you go. We're out of time. But did you see how many verses we blazed through right there at the end? Okay, very cool. All right, so I think that got us down to verse 7. That may be a record for us in here. All right, let's close in prayer. I'll stay around a little while if you've got some questions and we can hang out just a little bit. And again and again and again, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to leave this place. I'm going to ask you to pray about the conversation that we've been having on Sundays. And I'm going to ask you to simply obey whatever God lays on your heart. And if God lays nothing on your heart, then don't do anything. But if he lays something on your heart, I'm going to ask you to obey it completely. Whatever that would be. That you and I would set the example for the rest of the church to follow by our obedience. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just come before you tonight. And God, we just, we want to acknowledge in this room, we are your servants. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And so hear the answer of our heart. Whatever you call us to do, and whether that would be our finances or whether that would be a relationship that we're in or a job that we were thinking about taking, how we treat our neighbor, Whatever that is, whatever you would call upon our lives, our answer is yes, no matter what you ask, because we are your slaves, your bond servants, and we will spend our lives proving it. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you guys.